Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of Talking France. This is a podcast brought to you by The Local in which we talk about everything and anything to do with France. I'm Ben McPartland and I'll be joined by the team at The Local France editor Emma Pearson and our journalist Jen Mansfield. We'll also hear from political columnist and France specialist John Litchfield. In today's episode, we will discuss the problem of French police and crowds and why they just never seem to work and more often than not end up in a haze of tear gas. We'll We'll discuss the most controversial man in France right now and look at the parts of the country where there are more farm animals than people. In today's main topic, we'll find out how your summer holiday in France might be affected by a huge shortage of workers and explain exactly why. And finally, we'll find out why a woman's maiden name in France is more important than you might think. So stay with us until the end. Thanks for listening. Emma and Jen, good to have you back with us this week for another round of Talking France. Everybody okay? All good. Doing great. Now, we will start with the talking points from France this week. What are we talking about in France this week? We are talking about the French police. This is because of the chaos at the Stade de France on Saturday night. This is not the first time in France we're all talking about. It's not just us. The whole of France is talking about French policing methods. Emma... Explain the background. Why are we talking about French police again? It's because of what happened at the Champions League football final at the Stade de France in Paris on Saturday. We're not really going to go into that on this podcast, although we have covered it quite exhaustively on the local website. But one of the things that really shocked people outside of France was images of police using tear gas on football fans, including children. But actually here in France, that got a lot less reaction because it's almost common for ordinary people to be tear gassed in France. I mean, you've been tear gassed, right, Ben? Yeah, I was tear gassed at Garden Nord. I was just watching some anarchist yellow vest protesters setting fire to bins. I was filming them and trying to tweet it out. They were causing chaos on the road. Lots of people were watching. There were families coming out of Garden Nord. I remember family, you know, with kids with suitcases and stuff. And I could see the police down the road watching these guys set alight to bins and trash everything. And then all of a sudden, the tear gas comes and one hit my bike. And, you know, it really is a horrible, horrible experience. And I think if you've never experienced it before, for the first time, you're like, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't get out of this. This is not, you know, I'm in, I'm in trouble here. But the guys who'd set fire to the bins, they were gone. They knew exactly what, how the police were going to react to, you know, to what they were doing. So, like we've said, this is a common police tactic. Absolutely. I mean, we saw it in the in the Yellow Vest protest a lot, as you've mentioned, but it's very standard reaction to any crowd, really. Demos, protests, football fans, even raves or music events. It seems like the minute there's any trouble, the police's first reaction is just to start spraying tear gas. And what you don't see is the kind of sort of attempted de-escalation techniques that other police forces use. We spoke to a guy called Sebastien Roche. He works at Sciences Po Grenoble. He's an ex expert on French policing. And basically he said, French police are not expected to talk to the public. They're not trained to send information up the line to their superiors or to change plans according to development on the ground. They're poor at explaining to the public what they're doing and why. And I think that really sums it up. Yeah, so I mean, the, the lack of communication was one of the many complaints on Saturday. I mean, even for me, sometimes approaching like a French policeman, especially if it was in a riot gear, it just feels like, you know, it's, it's a kind of frightening experience almost. Why are they like this? It's partly the nature of a street process. 
protests, I think. Protest in France goes quickly to the streets. There's often demos and there's often violence at demos. And it's often quite extreme. I mean, we have these guys called the, the Black Bloc who are essentially professional rioters. So in fairness, the police themselves are often on the receiving end of violence. But the result of this seems to be the creation of a real sort of them and us mentality, that protesters feel it's okay to attack the police as representatives of the state. Police respond to violence with violence. Police are then seen as legitimate targets because they're thugs, and so it continues. I mean, one of the things that's frustrating for those of us who live in France and have watched this over a few years now, the way the protests are policed, is just the kind of lack of change. We see the scandals, we see the shocking social media images, you know, documentaries are made about police tactics, trying to explain them. Opposition politicians call for change, but really little seems to happen. Is that just because there's no accountability? I think so, yeah. We've said before that, you know, this became a big topic during the LFS protests, which were policed very violently. Protesters were maimed, there were people who lost hands, lost eyes. It was a scandal, nothing changed. But even when that was happening, plenty of people were saying that actually violent and racist policing has long been a problem in the banlieue, in the lower income, multi-ethnic areas of French cities. And there's kind of a feeling that it becomes a talking point when maybe white protesters in central Paris are injured or when football fans are affected. But it's really been a problem for a long time in certain parts of France and for certain communities. But French police, their unions basically refuse to accept any criticism ever. And it's really striking that most French interior ministers just back the police 100% whatever they do. So there's really no momentum for change there. Now I'm going to bring in political columnist and France specialist John Litchfield here. John, these issues with French police and poor crowd management, overuse of tear gas, bad communication go back many years. But why does nothing seem to change? The French police uh, are rather differently organised, I think, from police in other countries in, in, in two ways. One, they're, they're a national police force. There is no, there are metro, there are a municipal police, but we're not really talking about those. The, the national police force, which is under direct political control and tends to regard itself as there to protect the state, to protect the government rather than serve the people. Secondly, people I've spoken to, people who are more experts, certainly much more expert on police than me, suggest that the doctrine of French police has always been very top-down as well, and that uh, junior officers on the street, even mid-ranking officers on the street, when they're confronted with changing situations, rapidly changing situations, exactly what happened in Stade de France on Saturday, tend to stick to the rules, the, 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 the orders they've been given. They're not good and they're not welcomed if they send problems up the line. The more senior officers tend to be somewhat remote. And so things can quickly get out of control. You, you saw that in some of the Gilets Jaunes demonstrations in 2018 and 19, where the, the crowds with the demonstrators were far more mobile and nimble than the police and were able to destroy things when they wanted to or cause problems, the police could react. And there were occasions when the police overreacted against people who were not causing problems. And that's exactly what happened on Saturday, that the, uh, the orders to control the crowd which is what the French doctrine is. It's not so much controlling the crowd as, as keeping public order. Well, a crowd is regarded as a single object by the French police when it's in when it's causing trouble. And um, so even those who are innocent tend to get treated the same as those who are guilty. Who in France is in the news this week? We can't look further than Gérald Damanin, the interior minister. His name is once again trending on Twitter under the words Démission Damanin resign, given his response to the chaos in Stade de France. 
He was pictured on the left-wing daily newspaper Liberation with a huge Pinocchio nose implying some of his statistics and his explanations for what went wrong on Saturday night are just lies. Emma, give us the background on Damina. Well, he's been the Interior Minister since 2020 and he's pretty much been a controversial figure since day one. When he was first appointed to the job, which does make him the nominal head of the police force back in 2020, he was actually under a police investigation for rape and feminist groups were furious about this apparent sort of conflict of interest that, you know, the guy who was at least nominally in charge of the police force was being investigated by that same police force. Earlier this year, the, the case came to an end. The courts decided that he had no case to answer, so all of these charges were dropped. But... I think it's fair to say the anger hasn't gone away. When I was walking home this week, I saw a fly posting that said, Premier flic de France est un violeur. The France's top cop is a rapist, referring to him. So it's still a an issue. He's a hardliner politically on lots of issues, particularly immigration, integration. You probably have seen him in the news recently getting involved in this row about the issue of the, the burkini, the full body swimsuit in Grenoble. He's actually sometimes compared to the British Home Secretary Priti Patel and there are some similarities there I think. They're both from immigrant backgrounds themselves. Damana's grandfather was from Algeria. They're both to the right of their parties and they both always seem to be the kind of politician who's very keen on cracking down or getting tough on something. What's landed him in, in kind of a bit of a pickle in France this week is his explanation, some of the, the stats, the, the, the mathematics that he's used to try and explain why the kickoff was delayed, why there were so many people. He's referred to kind of 40,000 ticketless fans or fans with no tickets that, that's basically not going down in France or not being accepted. But this is not the first time he has landed himself in a pickle or a kind of scandal of his own making. Yeah, he seems to be one of these people who just likes getting involved in arguments. I mean, there are obviously some of the policies he's pushing are... A pretty right wing, but that's the government's policy. Where Darmanin himself gets involved is, for example, last summer I remember him getting involved in a row about vegetarian school meals. He was saying outrageous that schools were providing vegetarian meals for kids. I mean, that was essentially nothing to do with him as his brief interior minister. He also decided that he was shocked about ethnic food aisles in supermarkets, kind of implying they're against French secular principles which they're not. He just seems to love wading into a row. But that said, he's pretty popular with many on the, the right and the centre-right in France and his own political base in Tucoin in eastern France. And the pollsters are predicting that he's likely to be re-elected uh, in the parliamentary elections in June. I'm just going to bring uh, John back here, our columnist. John, why has President Emmanuel Macron stuck with Gerald Darmanin for so long and appears to still back him? Well, you have to remember who Darmanin is. He's one of Macron's biggest, most important captures from the centre-right. He was a rising centre-right politician who threw in his lot with Macron at the beginning of the last um, administration when he was originally budget minister. He was promoted to interior minister a couple of years ago now when uh, the prime minister changed. So I think Macron's always regarded him as a sort of tough man, a hard man, difficult man, but his hard man, his tough man, someone who's the right wing somewhat off his back, even though the right wing tends to attack Domina because he's one of them who's, who's changed sides. So Domina is, is kind of important within the whole Macron structure. That doesn't mean he's untouchable. In my view, uh, if anyone is forced to resign because of this, it won't be Darmanin, not initially anyway, but if the figures that are being put forward still 
by the French government about the supposed 30,000 extra fans who turned up at the stadium, figures which are very much in doubt, I should say, turn out to be wrong. I think it may be the prefect of police of Paris, Didier Lallemand, who's also a very controversial figure who, who might be the man to go. Interesting, just to make the point I was making earlier, Lallemand is the head of the Paris police. He's not a policeman, never been a policeman. He's only been in that job two years. He's a senior civil servant. He was head of the French penitentiary service at one time. He's done all kinds of other senior civil service jobs, but he is not a policeman. And that's what tends to happen. French police is run top down by people who are not police. And I think that is one of the difficulties overall. Don't forget, if you'd like to be able to read John's weekly analysis on France and all our articles, you can join now at a discount price by visiting www.thelocal.fr slash podcast offer. Now, moving on to a very different subject. Each week, we look at some parts of the France that are in the news. Jen, over to you. Where in France are we talking about this week? Yes, so now we're going to switch away from the poulet, which is the not-so-endearing French word for cops, and we're going to go to the different parts of the country where farm animals actually outnumber people. So data journalist and map aficionado Jules Condant, you might know him from the TV show Quotidien, he wanted to figure out where there are more farm animals than people in France. And surprisingly, he actually found a lot of départements where that's the case. So most of them are in central parts of France and in the northwest. And I'm going to break them down by farm animals specifically. So the first one are cows. Um, and there are actually a lot of departements where there are more cows than people. So again, like I said, most of them are in central France, like Nièvre, Allier, Creuse. And then a lot of them are also in the northwest and then the northeast. And then if we switch over to pigs, most of the departements where pigs outnumber people are in the northwest in Brittany. Places like Finistière, Côte-d'Armor, Morbihan. And this actually makes sense because pig farming is a big business in Brittany. And then finally, there's sheep. And this is another case for the Bretons. Most of the sheep to human population is in Brittany as well. Um, and then sadly, goats, uh, they did not make the farm animal list. There aren't any departements where goats outnumber people. Um, but basically, the summary of what he found was that there's a lot of empty space in France, although not as much as Texas, which, although it's roughly the same size, only has half the population of France, as us Americans love to remind you of. Okay, I got a question for you, Pear, then. At the other end of the scale, do you know which department in France has the highest population? I would say... Paris, Ile-de-France. I'd say maybe Paris or maybe Bouche de Rhone, which has Marseille in it. Good guesses, guys. No, you're both off. It is Nord, the Department of Nord, right up on the Belgian border where uh, there are many towns, conglomerations, all together there, really highly populated. However, it's not the most densely populated department in France, that is. Got to be Paris. It is indeed Paris. As we all know, living here is very dense. Thank you, guys. That brings us to the end of this week's Talking Points. French businesses and unions are warning that worker shortages will lead to major problems in several sectors this summer, and it could impact your holiday plans. From airports to cafes, restaurants and campsites, a shortage of staff is putting a real strain on several sectors in the country and beyond. So which areas are most affected and why has this shortage come about? Jen, you're going to explain to listeners everything we need to know. Yes. So France, along with several other European countries, are experiencing serious labor shortages, and that's going to have a pretty big impact on the holiday season that's coming up. So I'm going to get into which industries are most affected. 
The first is the airline industry. You might have seen a lot of people posting on Twitter or social media about how they've already had to wait in really long lines in airports across Europe, and that is also the case for France. This is going to be most pronounced in the Paris region. So, for example, Beauvais, the smaller budget airport outside of Paris, they're already expecting the traffic this summer to be even higher than it was in 2019. So basically, the issue is that there's going to be a lot of airport traffic. Everybody's trying to travel again after the pandemic. But the issue is that there's a huge shortage of airport staff. So basically, a lot of people during the lockdowns, they were put on part-time work, or many of them just chose to leave the industry altogether, as obviously there wasn't a lot of travel happening. On airports, uh, we've been contacted by a few readers who've been stuck at Charles de Gaulle. Emma, you brought, you've brought, you been covering this a little bit. Has it been that bad at Charles de Gaulle? It's mostly been for long-haul flights. The uh, flights within uh, Europe seem to be all right. I flew to Spain at Easter, and that was kind of fine. But we've had some long lines, especially for people who are going to the US. Away from airports, actually, people have been telling us who've been coming on the Eurostar over the last few weeks from London that there have been long queues at the St Pancras end of the Eurostar. So basically, the advice is just get there in absolutely loads of time. Indeed, not a fun time to travel at the moment. Jen, cafes and hotels, shortages? So cafes and hotels are also seeing shortages. That's the hospitality industry overall. And it's pretty similar to airports. Actually, a lot of hospitality workers were either partially or fully unemployed during the pandemic. And so a lot of people have chosen to leave the industry. And then now the restaurants, the cafes, the hotels, they're really struggling to recruit people. And the low wages and long hours have just stopped being as appealing. Okay, now summer in France for tens of thousands of people means camping, swimming in outdoor pools and lakes, summer camps for kids. What about the shortage of workers? Is it going to affect these areas too? Yes, unfortunately, the shortage of workers is also going to affect these areas. So the number one French campsite industry, Cap Fun Group, says that they're currently short about 20% of their workforce that they need for the high summer season. So this is pretty startling because at this time of the year, normally the industry would be heavily recruiting or hiring and then training the employees for the main holiday months, July and August, and they're still struggling to find people. And then for pools, yeah, I mean, it's the same case. Outdoor pools in certain parts of the country are also struggling to find workers like lifeguards and swim instructors. So what might happen is that pools might only be open a few hours a day. They might be offering a limited supply of swimming lessons. And then finally, for summer camps, parents like you, Ben, might be disappointed to hear that the summer camp industry has also been hit by staff shortages. Right now, there's still a 12% staff shortage before the start of the summer camp season, which is in July. And some of these camps, they might end up being canceled at the last minute if camp directors are not able to fill the positions or train the counselors in time. So basically, these shortages, they're happening across several sectors in France. Uh, Most of them have been impacted by the health crisis. I mean, it's not just specific to the holiday season. It's also healthcare workers that have been really affected. Um, and we're going to also see emergency services really stretched thin this summer as there are less employees and a lot of them are going to try to go on vacation themselves. Okay, I'm going to have to look after my own kids this summer. That's what you're telling me. Nightmare. Now, listen, I want to know why are these shortages? You know, you said it's not just France, it's around Europe, but why? Yeah, so like I kind of started explaining earlier, a lot of these industries were really impacted by COVID. The hospitality industry and the tourism industry generally, obviously those things were restricted heavily um, during the lockdowns. And seasonal work also really involves long hours and low pay a lot of times. And during lockdowns, when people weren't working, they had to reconsider what they wanted to do with their lives. And a lot of people chose to leave those industries in favor of places with more stable work. And then finally, students. So basically, another big factor is that students appear to be less enticed by seasonal work. A recent study found that students are prioritizing less physical work. Um, they're, They're looking more towards being receptionists or administrative assistants for the summer 
rather than hard labor and long hours that might be involved in working as, say, a summer camp counselor. Okay. Now, every listener is probably wanting to know, will this be resolved by the holidays in July and August? Unfortunately, probably not. For airports, there's a huge amount of staff that's missing. I mean, it takes a really long time to train people, especially for jobs that have to do with security. And then also for a lot of these industries, it's just too big of a hole to imagine filling by the time of the high holiday season. So not to mention, by this time of year, many of these industries would have reported having already finished the interviewing process and that they would have way more candidates that would be interested in doing the work. And they're still just struggling to get people interested to begin with. Okay, so the summer ahead, it's like the first big summer after COVID might not run quite as smoothly as we hoped. Thanks, Jen. A big thank you to everyone who has taken our survey so far. We read all the comments and feedback and we do want to hear from as many listeners as possible. So if you can please visit the link in the episode description on your app and there you'll find the survey. Each week on the podcast, we will pick a subject particular to France and tell you three things to know about it. This week, we are talking about l'Académie Française. Emma, l'Académie Française, what is it? What do they do? Well, their actual mission is defined as the defence of the French language. And since they were founded in 1635, they've done things like create dictionaries and lay down the sort of structural and grammatical rules of the language. They decide whether new words are masculine or feminine, for example. So during the pandemic, it was them that ruled that we talk about le coronavirus, but la Covid-19. Very logical there, obviously. But the part of their mission that always seems to attract the headlines is their ongoing fight against English words or phrases. There's quite a lot of these get imported into French, um, especially in areas like tech or business. Some of them are imported directly, like le marketing, but some end up with a completely different meaning in French. So we have uh, le footing, for example, which means jogging, and les baskets, which are trainers or sneakers. Now, Jen, how much power do they have? We talk about them as guardians of the French language. You know, what does that mean? Yeah, so a lot of their power is largely symbolic. They are considered the guardians of the French language, like you just said. And like Emma mentioned, they produce official dictionaries. So they have the power over the official grammar Um, structure of words and verbs and how to conjugate things and what words are officially entered into the French lexicon. And they're also linked to the French Ministry of Culture. And so these rules that the Academy comes up with, they can be extended into official government publications and advertisements. Typically, they advise the government on matters like, say, whether or not to feminize job titles, but the government doesn't always follow that advice. But at the end of the day, the academy has no real power over how actual people speak French. And as we know, languages evolve and change over time. I mean, the amount of English, you know, I hear in Paris among young people speaking it, throwing English words into the conversation, it doesn't look like they listen to the Académie Française at all. Final point, Jen, who are the people who make up the Académie Française? So there are 40 members of the Académie. Um, They're mostly important writers, thinkers, historians, maybe even doctors, and they're known as the Immortels. And basically, these members of the Académie Française owe their nickname to the motto To Immortality, which was inscribed on a seal given to the Academy by its founder, Cardinal de Richelieu. And basically, it means that being a member of the Academy is something that's a permanent dignity, uh, and it's an honor until death, so it's immortel. Fantastic. I knew none of that before I've been speaking to you too. So thanks, guys, for informing us all about l'Académie Française. Now, each week, we love to receive questions from readers about France, the French, anything to do with the country. This week, we're looking at women's maiden names. Yeah, it sounds a strange subject, but they are incredibly important in France, are they not? Emma, why is a woman's maiden name 
such a big deal? Yeah, it's a question that we get asked a lot by our readers because it really does have a, an impact on your daily life. Um, and it's basically to do with cultural norms in different countries. So in the UK or the US, if a woman gets married, it's quite common to change your surname to that of your husband. Not everybody does it, but plenty of people do. And if you do decide to do that, you would normally change your name on official documents like your passport or your driving licence. And that means that basically you end up with one name on your birth certificate, your maiden name, and a different name on your passport or your driving licence. And that's completely normal because everybody does it. In France, that's not the case at all. And the name that you're born with stays with you on all official documents. It's only if you like apply for a legal name change of name that your name would be changed on something like your passport. It doesn't mean that women don't change their name when they get married, obviously. Uh, think of Brigitte Macron, formerly uh, Brigitte Rognon. But they don't change their name on official documents. So when married Anglo women come along to do some kind of administrative task, they often end up presenting a birth certificate that has one name and a passport that has a different name. And this tends to freak out French officials because it would never happen in France and they kind of instantly assume identity fraud. So it can be a real problem for Anglo women in France. Indeed. French names are incredibly important in France. I remember the driving licence folk, uh, the police it was, freaked out when they didn't believe that Ben on my driving licence was the same as Benedict on my passport. I had to do everything to prove that Benedict was indeed Ben. I ended up in a doctor doing squats uh, and having an eye test to prove I was fit to drive. But it all came down to the fact that, you know, Ben and Benedict wasn't the same. And when you think about it, you know, you get people called William who get called Bill. You know, as a foreigner coming over here, you know, William and Bill is interchangeable. But to French authorities... It's not really, it's a totally different name. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, any kind of difference on uh, on names is important. And as I say, because there isn't the cultural norm that women do it, it's unusual. So basically, firstly, you need to be aware that this might be an issue. And the second thing you need to do is you'll need to provide extra documentation that has the two names on it. So for most people, that would be a marriage certificate. You might need to get some kind of attestation to sort of prove it. There are ways around it, but you need to expect that this may well be a problem. Wow, thank you. Very interesting stuff. Now, if you have any questions that you want to ask the podcast team, please send them over to news at the local.fr and we'll do our best to answer them. It is near the end of the podcast, which means we need to look ahead at what's coming up in France. Jen, it is another long weekend in France. We've just had Ascension Weekend where many did Le Pont, which we talked about last week. This week we've got another long one, or not all of us have. Yes. So every year, this holiday keeps people guessing about whether or not they're going to actually have to work. It's Pentecost or Wits Day in English. It's a holiday that was originally tied to the Christian calendar. It's this upcoming Monday, and it used to be one of France's public holidays. And then in 2005, the French government actually decided to make it also Solidarity Day, where workers could work the day without pay. And then hypothetically, that pay would that they would have earned goes towards the elderly and the disabled. It's a bit contentious, though, and now it's no longer obligatory to observe Solidarity Day, but it's still kind of confusing as to whether or not you're going to work or you're not going to work and where that money ends up going. Plus, it can be a bit of a nightmare for parents because the schools close, but then if they observe Solidarity Day, then they end up having to find childcare too. So... It's a bit of a doozy. Yeah, it all depends on, a lot of time it just depends on which companies you're working for. Some get it off, some don't. As you say, it causes problems for parents. Interesting. We also have elections on the horizon, Emma, parliamentary elections. Uh, yeah, that's right. We're sort of, uh, we're going to go into a lot more detail about what these mean and uh, why they're important next week. But uh, we've got two rounds of voting again on the 12th and the 19th. And that's when people in France vote for their local representative, their député, like an MP, who sits in the national parliament to represent their area. And finally, gas, electricity. 
What's going on here? Yeah, I don't know if it's okay to uh, talk about this, but this is something that won't be coming up. Basically, what won't be coming up is any kind of rise to your gas or electricity bill because the government has said this week that the price freeze on utility bills in France, which has been in place since the beginning of the year, will continue until at least the end of this year and possibly in 2023. So one thing that we don't have to worry about is spiralling gas prices or electricity prices. Fantastic. Some good news to end the podcast. Thanks again, guys, for joining us. Thanks, Ben. No problem. And thank you to everybody for listening please share your feedback about the podcast in our survey which you can find in the episode description on your app we'll be back again next week tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.